it's me, Gertie. <laughs> hey, everyone. Uh, I run the concession stand at the Marionette Theater here in Spuds Flat, New York. <laughs> here we go, folks. Pack up your winter gear. You're in for some chills. This film is set at a ski resort in the Colorado Rockies during the dead of winter. This story involves an out-of-work teacher turned aspiring author, an abused housewife, and a special needs child. Ah, that just makes me laugh. I don't know why. We're watching the 1980 film, The Shining. Hit it, maestro. What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of the golden oldies. And a smidgen of streaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. Well, good evening, Mr. Smelly. And how are you this fine night? I am so good. So good indeed. Are your halls all decked there out in the pickle hollows? <laughs> Not really. But I, you know, I just don't. I don't deck the halls, but that's fine. You know what I'm really happy about is that uh, Mr. Mike 1972 has joined us along uh, with a bunch of other folks. And uh, it, 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 it just makes me happy that there's so many people here in the chat room tonight. Oh, wonderful. We have a full house. And uh, DJ, for the first time, on our little shoe, we have a, a, a guest host. Would you like to introduce the well, guest host? Yes, look at coming up the drive. Santa Slay is pulling up, and we seem to have, well, I think maybe a debutante of the ball. Oh, she's coming up to the door. Everyone, get your seats. It's Miss Brenda Boo. <laughs> Good evening, Brenda. How are you this fine night? Doing well. I am up to my nose, my nostril with information about The Shining. I'm excited to talk about it. It's one of my very favorite movies. And I did suggest it. I don't know if you've mentioned that already, but it was my suggestion. And um, I've got some information that you may already know, you guys, you two might have read. Because I didn't dig deep, but I did, did do some digging. And Brenda, I got to tell you, when we approached you to be on our little shoe and we said, Brenda, you, you select a movie, whatever you want to select. I got to tell you, the last movie that I ever thought you would select <laughs> is Shining. How, why was this movie at the top of your mind, at the top of your list, uh, The Shining of all things? <laughs> Well, um, you guys asked me around Halloween. And oh. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Brenda, I was talking to hubby about this movie, and I was wondering how could we spin this, spin this with a holiday spirit. And he said, well, there is lots of red. <laughs> well, and it snows. It snows a lot in the movie. Jingle That's bells snowing down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> well, that's funny, Brenda. That is true. Uh, we we approached you. It was way back around Halloween. She, I guess you were just thinking of scary movies. No, I think it's because Netflix had said it showed that it was playing. And it just reminded me how much I liked that movie. And I would like to talk about it with somebody. What a perfect opportunity it was. So, Well, welcome once again. And this is a first of Matinee Minutia. We have a woman in the house. So please dust off your seat. And you know, welcome to the Marionette Theater, Miss Brenda. Thank you so much. So when we uh, we begin the show, I normally set the stage, as it were. We we put our listeners into the mindset of what was going on in the world at the time this movie was released. So this movie came out in 1980. And uh, I'll just let you know a few things that were happening in that time. So uh, in 1980, the comic strip The Far Side first was released in newspapers. President Carter approved a $1.5 billion bailout of Chrysler. Hmm. Can I just stop you now, DJ? I suddenly feel very old. (laughs) Okay, please continue. I'm just thinking, wait, there was another bailout of a big company? Um, (laughs) The U.S. defeated the Soviet Union in hockey at the 13th Winter Olympics. We also have President Carter announced the U.S. would boycott the following Olympics, which was the Summer Olympics, because they were going to be hosted in Moscow. Hmm. Cold War. Uh, The Voyager 1 probe confirmed the existence of the Saturn moon Janus. We we knew Saturn had rings, but we weren't sure how many moons. And uh, the U.S. severed diplomatic relations with Iran because there was a little thing called a hostage crisis during that time. Uh, let's see, we try to keep things on the lighter side when it comes to the history, uh, but uh, there were a few things happening that time that uh, happened. The Pennsylvania Lottery happened to get rigged by six men, including the host of the TV drawing. Uh, I do not remember that. <laughs> uh, let's see, a few other things. The inmate with the longest served prison sentence at the time was released from jail after 68 years. This person committed their crime in 1911. Oh, poor guy. Oh, the uh, the Department of Education was formally spun off into its own entity and began operations in 1980. And then just a handful of other things. Empire Strikes Back was released. Pac-Man was the best-selling arcade game of its time. No. <laughs> oh god this was yeah that's right 1980 mm-hmm. it's all we had folks was the arcade you had to have a stack of quarters and go into an arcade then uh, senator ted kennedy won several state primaries but failed to get the democratic party nomination for presidency so that's how we ended up with reagan he became Oops. a republican nominee uh, let's see. We also had Robert Redford making his directorial debut with the film Ordinary People. And then lastly, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Phantom of the Opera first debuted in London's West End. Cow, I, oh my God. And uh, just to finish up what was going on in the world, 
we normally mention a few folks that entered the world in that year, so we can. This makes me sad. Go ahead, tell us the celebrity <laughs> born in 1980. We have a sitcom star from New Girl, Zoe de Chanel, who is actually a jazz uh, performer. She was in the movie Elf with Will Ferrell. We also have Christina Ricci, who played. Uh, Wednesday Adams and the Adams Family movies and uh, several other films since then. Uh, we have Home Alone famed child actor Macaulay Culkin. And then lastly, but certainly not least, uh, child actor now Star Trek captain Chris Pine, who is now Captain Kirk. Oh, good Lord. That just, this is the kind of stuff I can't. <laughs> no, Chris Pine was born in 1980. Oh, God. I know. And I'm older than him. Not by much, but it still makes me feel my age. I mean, I was an uncle at 11, so come on. <laughs> Tommy says, are you the Kirk unit? Hmm. Famously from Star Trek, the motion picture. So we had a bunch of other movies that came out during that time. There were 116 films that came out in 1980. Toppy, do you want to take a guess at what some of the others were? Uh, the, the Star Trek, the motion picture? Not quite. Uh, there was Empire Strikes Back, which was the number one at the box office that year. That made $200 million. And uh, some of the other films of note were 9 to 5, which made half that $100 million. Airplane... With Leslie Nielsen, Private Benjamin with Goldie Hawn, there is the Blues Brothers, Flash Gordon, and one of my favorites, Xanadu. And the film that we'll be discussing tonight, The Shining, it placed 14th on the box office earnings that year with $44 million. It was beat out by Urban Cowboy and... Mm -hmm. A film that another Shining, or, or one of the Shining cast also starred in that year, Popeye, with Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall <clears throat> had a great few years, starting with The Shining and onward. Uh, let's face it, uh, when The Shining came out, it was kind of a crushing disappointment to many. It didn't exactly do all too well. And uh, it, it's got lots of bad reviews. And what's, what's the people that do the Razzies? They got some Razzies. Oh. <laughs> Whoever does those. But it was not exactly uh, well-received, uh, least of all by Stephen King himself, who infamously uh, did not like this movie of his novel. So can I just defend uh, Kubrick at this point? I don't. I'm not defending the fact that he just went off on his own and did a lot of shit that wasn't even in the movie. But who, in God's name, could have taken one of these thousand-page novels and been true to them on screen? Ah, good point. Good point. This guy uh, was a coked-up drug addict <laughs> writing a mile a minute. Was he coked up? <laughs> this boy was on, he was so high, he doesn't even remember writing some of these books. And The Shining is one of those that he doesn't <laughs> remember writing. Brenda, I seriously did not know that. Oh about my, him. so the location for the film may have actually been a cover-up for his drug problem? <laughs> what? <laughs> there was lots of snow, it's a metaphor for oh. cocaine. Sorry. <laughs> I seriously 
actually did not know that about <laughs> King. He he was really. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Well, no, I think she said Kubrick, not King, Stephen King. No, 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 no. I meant if I I meant Stephen King. Stephen King was a total alcoholic, cokehead, any kind of drug. He would drink Listerine. This man had a serious problem. Oh my God! I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. At, at some point, he was shoving up cotton into his nose to keep the blood from dripping down on his typewriter while he was typing. Oh no! Jesus. That's really dark. <laughs> I didn't. But you yeah. know what? Uh, what is interesting about what you're saying right now is that King later admitted that while writing The Shining, he was thinking very much of his marriage and of the the inward hostility he had towards his children, which makes sense now that you're saying he was kind of coked up at the time. But he was scared of the feelings of just like, why are you always crying? Why are you always bugging me? Why he was that kind of dead? And he's admitted this. And, um, and you know, guess what? That's the kind of dad Jack Torrance was in the movie and the book, The Shining, uh, not the world's greatest dad. And you know, the, when they kill the family, wants to kill the family, he's not going to get Father of the Year award. Right. <laughs> so that's really that's interesting because I didn't know that. Well, and and you think about the storyline of this, you have uh, you know uh, Jack Nicholson's character who was a teacher, and it's explained that they're you know they're moving for him to take this job and he's decided to become a writer because you know when you when you have a change in life you you find a hobby to take up your time especially if you need to take your mind off of things but you, you have to wonder if there's a you know if they make a new interpretation of this or if this were you know made now if there would be more to the backstory of why exactly is this teacher suddenly moving? Did something happen to make them have to move? Besides the fact that, you know, there there's the potential for the abuse with the child and the wife. Now, according to in the book, the reason he stopped quit or stopped teaching was because he beat up a student. Oh. So there's all kinds of things that didn't get explained. Yeah. Can can we talk a little bit about um uh, what's his butt, King? Before we start talking about the actual movie. Oh, absolutely. So, um, what little I do know about him, I, I just was finding out today, and I thought it was very relevant. So, this man was, you know, as you know, was prolific. At times, he would he would publish three books in a year. I don't know how that's even possible. Um, and as we touched on, from like 1970 to about uh, early 90s. He was a raging alcoholic, drugs. Um, the cocaine came into play once he started hanging around the Hollywood crowd. And then he would just drink anything, anything. He smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. Like I said, he would drink Listerine. He would do anything. And his wife and you know, was helpless just sitting there watching this go down. Um, 
see what else did I want to. Well, while you're uh, saying that, Brenda, in the chat room, Tommy has mentioned that Stephen King himself was an English teacher. So it's sort of autobiographical in part. Oh, all, I feel like a lot of his stories, he inserts himself in some way. Um, if you like, uh, just for instance, if I can quote the um, the actual movie, there is because I rewatched it today. There's a scene where shit is starting to hit the fan and uh, Wendy is backing up and she has the bat. She's going up the stair steps and Jack is coming up and um, he's screaming at her and he starts yelling. Do you even have any idea what it means to have an obligation to have signed a contract to have to know that whatever you do now is going to affect your entire career. And it just sounded like this was just something that he thought, because it really kind of, if you knew his, his life, it, it, it almost, it seems obvious that that was just his thoughts about, he probably had signed contracts to write books and the stress he felt, even though in the movie, it's the context of he didn't want to leave the inn. blah, blah, blah. Um. Um, well, you know what what you just said, Brenda. Um, I wonder if that dialogue that I believe is from the movie. I wonder if it's in the book exactly that way, because a lot of quote scholars unquote would say that the words Jack is saying at that moment, some of the words you just said was really all about Stanley Kubrick. Hmm. Could have been. I feel like, yeah, he took a lot of license. I kind of uh, poking around in that documentary, that 237. Mm-hmm. If, that, if that's the case, some of the things he was talking about, the annihilation of Native Americans and references to the Holocaust, he sure was uh, making somebody else's art into something that, only served his purpose because that's not what the shining's about at all right and uh i just want to make a footnote to our listeners uh brenda's making reference to some of the the trivia that we like to explore here on matinee minutia because this is a podcast that's not just about watching the movie it's finding out what went on behind the scenes and you know what made the director's mind go in that direction and there is a documentary called Room 237 and explores a lot of the the subtext of why some of the choices were made for this story. And uh, that room number was actually changed from the original book. And that's one of the reasons that Stephen King gives that he didn't care for Stubi- St- pardon me, Stanley Kubrick's interpretation of his novel because he made several changes. Now, the... Wait. Yeah. The the difference between 270-237. Right. Well, I think in that case, the the room number was changed because the real Stanley Hotel that takes uh, that's in that location in Colorado had a room 217. They were concerned that guests might not want to stay in that room. So they changed the room number to one they didn't have in the hotel. Oh, is that it? Okay. <laughs> there's there's a couple theories about that. Um, <clears throat> Matt uh, Spanking B. Arthur Matthew uh, is question just wonders are uh, are any of us Stephen King fans? I am. And I'll say that 
I've, I've enjoyed everything I've read from him. Although I have to say that I probably stopped reading his books before the Tommy knockers. So I read all his early stuff and I can't say I've read anything in the last 20 years, but I loved, I loved everything that, Oh, my favorite is, uh, 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 the vampire thing. What's it called? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Salem's lot. Okay. Huh? And, um, I, I am, I'm not a huge reader. I do enjoy a good book. Uh, Stephen King's books seemed to be a little long for my taste when I first came to know of his work, but I do know a lot of his work that's been turned into films and television, and one of the ones I remember the most was a TV miniseries that was made of the Langoliers, and Bronson Pinchot had a role in that film. He was the, the neurotic guy who liked the sound of tearing paper. Bronson Pinchot. Yeah, I re- just quite an actor. Just what do you call the ones that are? Oh, I can't oh has been. No, I was thinking like the Character. best. No, hush, and I'll try to explain it to you. <laughs> I mean, like a thespian. He's a real thespian. That's what I was trying to say. Ah, uh, well, he actually seen a resurgence recently. He's been cast in the Netflix original series Sabrina. And he is the high school principal in that. All right. You've just proven my case. (laughs) 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 Matt in the chat room, uh, spanking B. Arthur, uh, typed out just what I said has been. I love him, he says. So uh, returning to the film, there's quite a bit of trivia here. And you guys were discussing Stephen King and, uh, you know, whether you, you liked his works. So... Uh, shall we discuss some more of the minutiae that's going on with this movie? Brenda, what were some of the other themes that you say have been uh, mentioned as being underlying work of this movie? Well, I just want to say real quick that I could never read a Stephen King book because I, I tried to read one and it was like reading from the mind of a madman. And now I know why, because he was so hooked <laughs> up on drugs. So it's, <laughs> It makes me feel better because I was just like, wow, these are a lot of words and these sentences just go on ah. and on and on. I'm like, what the fuck? No, thank you. Uh. I, I take it you never read The Shining, which is about five million pages. <laughs> I tried to listen to it in audiobook form, and even that I couldn't get all the way. Did that. I say The Shining? I meant to say The Stand. The oh. Stand is five million pages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a selective Stephen King Fan, let's put it that way. All right. Well, uh, uh, let's talk about the movie a little bit. And 1980, I went to the theater to see this. I'm not sure exactly why. I hadn't read the novel yet, but I did go. Uh, I don't think I was really educated much about Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so I'm not sure what, why I was eager to see this movie, but I was. And from the very beginning of this movie, I felt unhinged. I felt nervous. I felt like something is going on here. And DJ, I'm going to ask you to play a clip. It's clip one. 
and we'll play some of the opening music that went with the credits. And when we come back, I'll tell you what the visuals were. Okay. stop it that's where uh, did that come from i don't remember hearing any of the jungle sound um though that is what you heard over the opening credits the the very opening of the film is this aerial shot of jack driving his little car uh up this lone mountain road and it's shot from very high but folks I feel sorry for you because if you haven't seen this on the big screen, you're not going to get the scope of how this was was big. It was a stunning beginning, and I'm obviously talking now about the vision of Kubrick and why he's so great, in my opinion. But the beginning of this movie, right off the bat, you are... Woo, something's gonna happen here. And he doesn't let up. My interpretation of that is that since uh, his car is very small and just it's a very smooth uh, filming of it all and, and everything looks so big, I feel like it represents how big nature is gonna be a part of this because the reason they're up there is because nature is could take that hotel down in the winter if they basically weren't there to keep things running. And I feel like to me, that represents how, how big of a part nature is going to be part of this whole movie. I agree. And what it's showing you is eventually you, you get a feeling of this hotel and how secluded it is. And, and that's a huge part of the movie is that Jack, the father, Wendy, the wife, Danny, the child are secluded in this gigantic hotel. And winter sets in, the snow falls, and they are... There's no getting out. That's a huge part of the film. They're just completely isolated. And and something that's mentioned in the Room 237 documentary about the making of The Shining is that um, there are some who feel that if you catch it in the right frame in the opening sequence, you can actually see Stanley Kubrick's likeness in the clouds 
behind the, oh, the film's yeah. name. <clears throat> now, yeah, how we, many times have these people watched this movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. we, we are actually at the halfway mark here. So, uh, folks, this is where we take a brief break. You'll have three minutes to grab a beverage or visit the little half moon house. And for those of you who stick around, we've got a special treat. Now, uh, I've dug up a sort of a a Christmas themed little ditty here. There is a, uh, a recording artist from out west who was a radio DJ and he did a lot of kind of uh, Dr. Demento kind of stuff. His name was Bob Rivers. And this is a Christmas carol a la Jack Nicholson. It's performed by Bob Rivers, but it's impersonating Jack Nicholson. So it's uh, it's uh, St. Nicholson. So here we go. Twas the fright before Christmas. No one upset me. With a big bowl of popcorn watching TV. I stretched, gave a yawn, settled back in my chair in hopes that St. Nicholson soon would be there. When out in the yard there arose such a noise, I turned off the TV to see what it was. The limo was racing, the team at its heels. That's when I saw him, the man at the wheel. He ranted and cursed, waved round his swizzle stick, and I knew in a second it must be Jack Nick. Down the chimney, St. Nicholson came with a groan. Then he brushed off the soot and said, Honey, I'm home. He was wearing a trench coat with beer it was stained and a shirt clawed to shreds by Shirley MacLaine. He had a fat face and a flabby beer belly from too many trips to the bar in the deli. It's tough when an actor becomes fat and lazy. I only get calls to play weirdos and crazies. Middle-aged has-beens with washed-up careers. But I'll fix them all and play Santa this year. And that's just a partial uh, sampling of St. Nicholson by Bob Rivers. If you'd like the full version of that, you can probably find it anywhere you can find your your music. Uh, Bob Rivers actually had several albums. So, uh, Toppy, if you're there, sir. Yes, I am. Okay, you were you were setting the scene here. We were talking about the isolated location of the the hotel and the opening sequence there. Uh, return us to the setting there, sir. Well, uh, Jack has an interview that happens right up at the top, and uh, why don't you play a clip three, okay. DJ? I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? I don't believe they did. Well, uh, my predecessor in this job hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. And he had a good employment record, good references. And from what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, (laughs) killed his family with an axe. Stacked them neatly in one of the rooms of the West Wing. And uh, then he uh, he put uh, both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. Police, uh, I thought that it was what the old timers used to call cabin fever kind of claustrophobic reaction which can occur when people are shut in together over long periods of time. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. 
yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, that's a a scene really early in the beginning. Right away, you just kind of know, yeah, it is going to happen. And um, it's part of the thrills and chills as the movie goes along. Is there anybody who could have been cast in this role besides Jack Nicholson? I don't know. But he really kind of makes the movie with his performance. Well, I really I really like him in it, but he is he doesn't serve the book in the bur- in the book you watch the character go slowly insane whereas Jack just shows up insane. There is no transition whatsoever, <laughs> I think. Yeah, actually in the scene we just heard that's kind of the only transaction because at the beginning of the interview, oh, here's a normal guy. But the way, the way he's shown hearing the events in this hotel and then his last, you know, claim that, well, that'll never happen to me. You just, you don't believe it. You just don't believe it. And right away he's like, ew, this guy, weird. Well, <laughs> I uh, I looked up a list of certain random things that were different from the book, and I'm I didn't write them all down. But one of the things that in the book it sounds like the hotel had a much bigger presence. Like somehow the the uh, the hotel was alive. I'm putting that in quotes. And at the end of the book, the actual the hotel explodes, and it's it's you know. I never got that feeling from the movie. To me, it just felt like um, spirits had taken over. But apparently, in the book, it's more of a uh, the the you know. And I'm, I can't say alive. I can't think of the right word. But um, like possessed. Yeah. The, ho- the hotel has a history, and there's a feeling of it's repeating things. Mm-hmm. Can I just bring up a few things that really show the age when this movie was made? So the book was published in 77. As we said, the movie came out in 80. There are some things that I jotted down that clearly would not be kosher today. Um, uh, Wendy would not be smoking nonstop. (laughs) 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 Seriously, folks. She, like, has a cigarette in her hand on a lot of scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no doctors doing house calls anymore. Right. <laughs> yep. At the beginning, uh, Danny faints, and Wendy calls in a doctor, and she comes right over to their apartment. Um, in one of the scenes in the back, this is just something I noticed as a woman, there was one of those old-fashioned hair dryers that was like the kind you see in the salon where they come down and just come down on your head. I yeah. saw in the background. And the other thing I noticed was um, they don't say it a lot, but I wonder, I wondered about this when King wrote this book in, what, 76, probably was, you know, what I don't know if he wrote it the same year. But would he have been dropping the N-word around as much as it is in that one scene? And it's very casually just kind of stuck in there. It's not necessary. And um, you certainly wouldn't have that nowadays. Well, maybe not. But I I will say that the person that uses the N-word in the movie 
is someone from long ago in the past. He's actually, we don't really know. Is he a ghost? Oh. Is Jack hallucinating? But <clears throat> the guy that uses the N-word is from an age of people who would use the N-word. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I, I can see what you're what you're going for. I, I just don't think it would be included in a movie nowadays. I think they might just skip that little part. Mm-hmm. That's possible, especially with today's politics. And, you know, I'd have to wonder, though, if, if this were a more recent story, you know, would the, the Wendy character have been a little bit more informed? I mean, her husband, having recently been through... Uh, the ringer with you know getting fired for you know the the backstory in the book with the the student um you know would she feel okay about going out to the middle of nowhere with this man who has clearly got anger issues <laughs> well yeah. that was just accepted you know back then the man was in charge and i think they did a perfect um, if they were trying to show the innocence versus pure evil, they couldn't have found a better face than Shelley Duvall's. Those big eyes and those that toothy mouth she has. Mm-hmm. She's yeah. just perfect. And she really, really knocks it out of the park, as they say. I agree. She's completely sympathetic. You really feel for her from the get-go. Also, the kid actor who plays Danny. Oh, Danny, I love Danny. What a doll. <laughs> what a talent. I mean, I don't, uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes documentaries about how they got this performance out of this little kid, but they got it. And, you know, all you can really say is what a, you know, it's a little kid, but it's a brilliant performance. And kudos to, everyone who brought it out. Yeah, I, I was wondering how did they get him to make those facial expressions without completely traumatizing him in the process? Well, you know, the, he didn't do much more acting after that, and nowadays I, I read somewhere that he's a vet, or he's a uh, professor at college, I think. <laughs> Could be. I guess he didn't exactly go on to act. But that happens oh. to a lot of child actors, too. You know, their their parents encourage them to do to explore this, and it's it's kind of like taking that summer off before you go to college. Oh, this isn't really what I want to do. I don't know. Um, no, I, I think let's just talk about the performances. But aren't they all kind of brilliant? Shelley Duvall, the kid, mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson. I, I do feel like Jack. That's Jack's kind of character. He. He is, that's a well, he's, he's drugged that crazy man around with him for a while. It fits perfectly for this movie. Don't get me wrong. But that is kind of like um, his thing. Don't you think? With those crazy yeah. browsing shit. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, DJ, why don't you play clip seven right now? Okay. Getting to it. Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future? If I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities, has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Stay away from me. Why? I just want to go back to my room. Why? I'm very confused. I just need a chance to think things over. 
You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more gonna do you now? Stay away from me. Please! Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me. Wendy. Stay away! Darling, light of my life. I'm not gonna hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. I'm gonna bash him right the fuck in. <laughs> Stay away from me. Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Stay away from me. Stay away from me. Stop swinging the bat. Stay away from me. Put the bat down, Wendy. Stop it. Stay away from me. Stop swinging the bat. Wait, stop. Give me the bat, Wendy. Stay away from me. Wendy. Stay. Give me the bat. Give me the bat. Ah, God Well, Jack got the bat upside his head. And that is apparently the scene that Stanley Kubrick made Shelley Duvall, poor Shelley Duvall, do over 127 times. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's horrifying. Have you heard of this, Brendan? No. Okay, Jack Kubrick was kind of a weird guy. Stanley. Stanley Kubrick. Did I? I'm sorry. Stanley Kubrick (laughs) was kind of a weird guy, and first of all, not a very prolific director because he would spend years on research and fine tuning and writing and rewriting. Uh, whatever property he might get a hold of. And he wasn't interested in spinning out a thousand yarns. He was interested in doing something that really meant something to him. I guess he's a real high IQ guy. I mean, really smarty pants. And one of the things he did as a director was let's retake it <laughs> shoot it again shoot it again and i businessman then cuz you got he's not much of a businessman then cuz you got to you got to move material to get the next film oh well that was not that was not how he operated uh, that's just not how he operated. And you have um, to wonder from the, the uh, money perspective, as Brenda was hinting at, you know, uh, typically in a film setting, the producer is the person that holds the purse strings. So uh, can you imagine what kind of reaction the producer got out of 127 takes? I mean, we're going into overtime here. Well, Kubrick was kind of on top of that and... He was a commanding figure, and he commanded he commanded what happened in his movies, and that's it. <laughs> but the number of takes that Jack, that um, Nicholson and Duvall had to take with that bat-swinging scene, I guess, went on forever. And what Kubrick wanted was to bring both of them to the point of exhaustion to finally capture what he hoped to catch, which was two exhausted people in trouble. And 
That's how he did it. And <laughs> Shelley Duvall reported, or reportedly, actually experienced stress to the point where her hair was falling out. This was not an easy shoot, that's for sure. And I'm sure that it's safe to say that she probably didn't do another film for him. <laughs> Sounds like a a nightmare. One of the things he did add from the, that wasn't in the book was the famous typing and all those pages that say, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy, which was very impactful. I have to say, when every time I see that, it just... You can see the look on her face, and that's what happens right before they start going up those stairs. It's she's realized her husband has lost her mind, and, or his mind, and when she starts pawing through those pages and there and all those different forms, and it's just the same thing. And her eyes are as big as saucers, and it's just perfect. I just love that. Yeah, it really is a great scene, and it's when you realize it's when you finally realize. Uh, Jack Torrance is out of control, and he's fucking completely insane. And, you know, Toppy, uh, one of the things that's interesting about the scene or the scenes with the typewriter, uh, it's kind of some of the subtext that you can get into with this, is that documentary, Room 237, talks about um, the the imagery. You know, you have the the blood coming down the elevator, and there's the use of the axe, and there's the prevalence of the American Indian artwork throughout the hotel. Of course, it's set in Colorado, said so that's some of the justification is that it was part of the old frontier. But some people believe that that's supposed to suggest this movie has a subtext about the genocide of the American Indian, as well as there's imagery in the film that suggests it could have a subtext of the Holocaust because the typewriter that Jack Nicholson's character uses is a German typewriter. There's an eagle on it, and there is an occurrence of the number 42 in several scenes of the film, which suggests 1942, the year that the Holocaust started. Yeah. Oh, that's right. like a bunch of bullshit. I, I'm not saying you, I'm not attacking anybody here. I'm just saying that sounds like they're really reaching for something, don't you think? Um, Brenda, you might be right, and who knows. But the fact is, this movie has had essays written about it. They've had... This movie may be one of the most written about movies ever, about the subtext behind it all and what it really meant. <laughs> and it... it turns to absurdity uh, because one of the theories is that Jack uh, that uh, Stanley Kubrick was part of, of the uh, uh, the whole US of A when they shot Apollo 11 up into space oh, yeah. and he he supposedly was selected because he displayed such great imagery in 2001 a space odyssey the federal government came and called on kubrick to say please fake our moon landing in case we don't really make it and uh no nobody is suggesting that the us of a never went to the moon but there was this footage people say that kubrick produced that just in case they never really went to the moon, that 
they had footage of America on the moon. <laughs> Who knows if this is true? I have not. There are all kinds of theories. There's the scene in The Shining when Danny wears the Apollo 11 T-shirt. And that's supposed to be Kubrick's way of saying, hey, I've been uh, strangled by the federal government to never reveal what I did. But in The Shining, I'm going to reveal that I hoaxed all this footage for the moon landing. Well, did he? I don't know. This but is that's awesome. Oh my God! (laughs) I was an English major, and I sat and listened to so many theories about what this book meant and what this book meant. The chair represented this, and blah blah blah. And I don't believe, I don't believe that people do this kind of shit on a regular basis. The way they make it sound, everything's a conspiracy. Everything's a nod to this. I mean, maybe it's true. I don't know, but it's just come on. Well, well, all I can say about that is, you know, I I, I never had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Stanley Kubrick because he passed away in 99. And I, I know a handful of his films. I'm not a film student, but it is something had to have been working in his mind that took him two years to make this. So it, it, we're probably all right to a degree. You know, he, he may have had thoughts about this and that. And a movie really is the product of its crew. So everyone had a hand in it somehow. And maybe he didn't know that some of these underlying things had, uh, you know, attachments to different storylines. Yeah. Tommy in the chat room is suggesting that the documentary called Room 237, which was about, let's just say, for want of a better language, the conspiracies involved in Kubrick's The Shining. And, you know, this is one guy's interpretation. And you could look at his evidence and say, Ooh, you know, hey, that's pretty convincing. But I've also looked at somebody else's uh, a study of Danny's Apollo 11 t-shirt. And it's not about, at all about the moon landing. It's about uh, a dick being shoved into his mouth. Right. In other words, the father has sexually molested uh, the child, hmm. and the image of the rocket is a dick, oh, and the dick is pointing right to Danny's mouth. Oh. So, which is right? Is it none of it? None of it's right. <laughs> is, is, is it the Apollo? Is it a signal that Kubrick was trying to tell the world? I've got this footage that I did that I can't really tell anybody, but I'm gonna I'm gonna reveal to you in this movie that I really did because I'm really guilty about it. But I faked this footage of the Apollo Light, or or is it just <laughs> what? Yeah. What is it? Well, I don't know. Uh, uh, Why are we entertaining this for so long? Right. <laughs> so, Let's talk about something else. Uh, well, so, well, so uh, it, we're entertain we're entertaining it because this is this is material that is much, much, much speculated about. Mm-hmm. And, so you, believe that, you don't think that things are just more random than they are, like. 
somebody who was doing the clothes just was like found this little sweater. Well, the thing is, Brenda, you have to know Kubrick. <laughs> and no, Brent, this is Kubrick spends years doing these projects. And he doesn't cavalierly select anything that doesn't have some kind of meaning. That's Kubrick. Well, and then if if you dig up, because there's enough material out there now, you can look up interviews with Stanley Kubrick. And, you know, he was kind of a shut-in, and uh, he was always very messy in appearance. Uh, you know, he, he gave the impression that he had a very frazzled mind. And, of course, some of the most brilliant people in this world are just a hair off of clinical. But, um, you know, we, we see th- life through rose-colored glasses sometimes. So we are nearing the end of the program, folks. And this is where we each give our impressions of how much or how little we like this film. So, uh, Brenda, since you're the guest of honor, could you let us know if you were stuck in a cabin in the woods and you didn't have any sort of technology, but, you know, you, you were able to bring some movies to watch with you. Is The Shining one of those movies you'd pack in your overnight bag? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I, I love it because when I, in 1980, I was a sophomore in high school. I don't remember when I actually saw it the first time, but um, it was one of the first scary movies I ever saw. And it made quite an impact on me. Um did, okay, I have to ask, did Kubrick do 2001 A Space Odyssey? Is that what you said? Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. I got no respect for this guy. <laughs> no, Brenton, don't stop that. God, I hate that fucking movie. That anyway. was done years, years and years and years before. And he also did A Clockwork Orange and Eyes Wide Shut with um, Tom Cruise later on in his career. That was actually his last That was film. his last movie. Yeah. <laughs> So, Jesus. so you would you would have this on your bookshelf, okay? So, how about you, Mister Smelly? Would The Shining be on your bookshelf if you were stranded in the woods? Well, kind of, sort of. Um, yes. The bottom line is, I think this is a great movie. As far as a horror movie, it's a great horror movie, and notwithstanding all of the voluminous. Uh, uh, material that's been written about this movie and what it really means. The bottom line is if you watch this fucking movie, it's fucking scary and it's creepy and weird. And if that's, that's what I want in a horror movie and this movie delivers bottom line, the end. Okay. So for myself, my bookshelf, well, I like, weird things. I like art. This is certainly an art film since film students have, you know, majored in studying Kubrick's work. So this would be on my shelf. However, since the caveat is that this is being stranded in the woods, just like when the X-Files was on TV, I would have to have all the lights on when I watched it. (laughs) Ah, Well, look, it is a disturbing movie and One of the things Stephen King said about Kubrick's movie of his novel was that uh, King felt that Kubrick was trying to make a movie that 
really hurt people and disturbed people. And I got to tell you that I think I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, Kubrick was going for blood in this movie. So we are at the top of the hour here. And uh, Mr. Smelly, let's set us up for the next show. Do you got those magic coins handy? All right. Let me get them out. Here we go. Uh, let me get a coin out. Okay. I'll put it in the slot. No, what jewel do we have for next time, DJ? Let me open the capsule, and it's a little piece of paper. Uh, DJ, what are we going to do next time on Matinee Minutia? Okay, well, we're continuing on with our 80s trend. We're moving a little bit forward. This is going to be a 1984 sitcom, and it was actually the first of its kind. It was the first TV show produced for Ted Turner's station, TBS, which at the time mostly aired reruns and uh, ball games for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, this is a show that ran from 1984 to 1987, and it stars the actor who is famous from Bewitched, Dick Sargent. Uh, coincidentally, wow. he got replaced a couple of seasons in. But this is oops. <laughs> this is down to earth, and it's basically the story of a gal from the Roaring Twenties who uh, meets an untimely death involving a cable car, and when she's brought back as an, a guardian angel, she has to uh, help this family through life that recently lost their mother. So. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of this. <laughs> ah, Brenda, neither have I. This is something that DJ has totally made up. I, I don't think it ever existed. It lasted three years? Yes, it was called Down to Earth, and uh, it has huh. quite a catchy tune. I should have pulled that up for the opening, but uh, the the main star, the, the housekeeper, her name's Ethel, and she sings yeah. uh, her woes about being a, a girl from the Roaring Twenties who ah. uh, gets hit by a cable car. Let's see. Our next episode is going to be on... Uh, it's our first one of the new year. It's going to be on Friday, January 4th. And, of course, this is our uh, current time slot of 9 p.m. Eastern. Rip Taylor is in the show, I guess. Rip Taylor. <laughs> you know, I always get Rip Taylor and Rip Torn mixed up. Ah. Uh, and also <laughs> Kyle Richards, who is one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills in it. Mm. I've never heard of this show ever, ever, ever. Brenda, if you would, please let our listeners know where they can find you when you're not guesting on fabulous game shows like this. You know, no, I don't. I'm not on any of these social medias anymore. So you can find me in Tinopa, Washington. <laughs> and on that other <laughs> and on that other show that you do with Mr. Toppy Smelly, what's that called again? Boomy. Yes. It's called Life on the Shit List or Lotso. Lotso right. Well, thanks. And uh, what Brenda didn't mention is her damn podcast is called Not Quite a Cat Lady. It's on YouTube, and it's her own little uh, personal journal podcast, which I find delightful, and I love it. 
and you can too if you look up not quite a cat lady thank you toppy thanks for dropping by brenda and uh we will head on out here thank you for listening to matinee minutia our program is live every other friday at 9 p.m eastern go to univospods.net click the tower for streaming audio enter discord for our chat room you can find this show wherever you listen to podcasts find us on twitter at matinee minutia join our facebook group or visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com have an idea for a future show or just want to message us email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com I have a voice I have a voice you have a voice you have a voice we have a voice we have a voice unique voices in podcasting univospods.net